0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Model Advisor podcast. I'm Ollie Smith, online reporter here at NMA. And this week's episode comes to you from deep underground, Kennington Tube Station. Why, you ask? Because I'm on an adventure for the purposes of broadcasting this podcast. I received a message from our podcast guest, who I'm extremely excited about introducing you to, saying that we could only do a podcast if I went to him. <coughs> So today's guest, I can reveal, is someone who commands the respect of journalists, politicians and policy experts alike. When it comes to government budgets and policy announcements, he's normally the one on the TV getting behind the headlines that politicians want you to hear to give you the actual facts of the matter at hand. I am obviously talking about Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Paul, thanks for having me at your offices today. How are you? I'm, I'm all right, thank you. Good stuff. Um, now, I gather that you were on University Challenge at Christmas as a special edition episode.
1: Uh, I was, it was part of the um, University Challenge alumni series, uh, which was uh, very challenging. How, How was it, you say, challenging? Was it scary? Well, we won, but uh, the, um, yeah, that was just good enough. That was mostly to do with my colleague, Frank Cottrell-Boyce, who was sat next to me answering almost all of the questions.
0: OK. Uh, well, I was going to say, what was his specialism?
1: But, I mean, if he was answering all the questions, <laughs> clearly he was a specialist in everything. He certainly knew all the literature and arty-type things, which I certainly didn't know.
0: OK. What's, um, apart from microeconomics and
1: you know, all things fiscal studies, what are your sort of specialisms? Well, the very few that I got right were largely political and uh, historical uh, type okay. questions. Okay, so you're not
0: you're not a, you're not an expert on Bond themed soundtracks or Monet afraid, paintings.
1: I'm afraid not. No Bond and Monet. No, no. I just about managed, um, you know, 20th century history. Those are my two topics, and I can answer <laughs> nothing else.
0: Um, so, with that in mind, we thought that um, we thought that we'd do some fun university challenge questions, oh God. Paul. So, according to the Office for National Statistics, February update. So, most recent update. What is the price of a loaf of bread?
1: Somewhere around a pound, I guess. Yeah, it's 106p. Hey. And what is
0: the price <laughs> of a pint of milk?
1: Depends where you buy it.
0: 40p. 44p. So, pretty spot on. And uh, if you were to go on Ocado, the online supermarket, what is the price of a tub of Utterly Butterly?
1: £1.50.
0: It's actually a pound, oh. but it was
1: reduced. <laughs> well, there you go. You didn't say what size tub it was. You've done well, you have done well, Paul. <laughs> you were under pressure there, and I think you performed
0: admir- admirably. Um, that's all about pricing, uh, which is a, a tenuous segue into our next topic, which is all about everyone paying more money. I'm specifically referencing a story about the government actually department here, because it said that we might have to raise national insurance contributions by 5% to fund the state pension. Um, is it the case that in the future, we're just all going to have to pay more to live well, and all this narrative about keeping taxes down is, is just unsustainable politically?
1: Well, if we are going to um, have a state pension at the same kind of level it, as it is now, and particularly if it carries on being triple locked, and we're going to continue to have a health service at the same kind of um, level that we have now, and it continues to become, more expensive because new medicines are more expensive and uh, you need to pay nurses and doctors properly, uh, then yes we are going to have to pay more tax in the longer term. There really is no way around that, partly of course because the, as a population we're getting older. Now, th- 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 when I say there's no way around it, I mean there are a couple of ways around it. One is that we just keep on raising the state pension age even more quickly than the way we're currently planning. and and don't forget that um, you know, the state pension age has not risen for men at all um, in the last you know, forever, um, whilst uh, um, longevity has risen remarkably fast, particularly over the last 30 years or so. So we are taking a bigger and bigger fraction of our lives in retirement, and we could stop that. Um, the other option we've got, of course, is to cut spending on other things. To keep taxes down, but we've been doing a lot of that over the last seven or eight years. And there's, it's not obvious what other things we do. If you look back over history; it's actually rather interesting. We're spending hugely more on the NHS and pensions than we were 60 years ago, but we're not actually sp- paying a lot more tax. How are we doing that? Well, it's because we've essentially abolished defence spending, um, and we've cut spending on nationalised industries and we've cut spending on housing. It's not clear what else we've got left to cut spending on. So my guess would be yes, we will end up over the next 20 years or so paying more tax to support particularly health and pensions.
0: And that issue of defence has really come to the forefront in the last three to four weeks hasn't it, with the um, renewed shall we say threat from Russia and the question of uh, how well placed the MOD is to uh, proceed in the future in dealing with that.
1: Yeah and if you look over time we really are spending uh, a huge amount less than we were in in the past. It's only about 2% of national um, income now, and it was, uh, you know, you look back in the 60s even, you are still up at seven or eight percent, and even in the 80s we were paying almost, spending almost twice as much as we do mm-hmm. now. All of which said, actually relative to most other European countries, we're still spending more on, mm-hmm. on, on defence than, than they are, but the mm-hmm. scope to, certainly compare with Germany, but the scope to cut it, you know, even if you abolished it now, I mean it's quote only. A couple of percent of GDP, I must say, well a substantial amount. But you know, the the scoop for getting significant money out of that is is, is gone.
0: Hmm. Um, was the sort was it the four percent GDP commitment to NATO? Was that was that the commitment that David Cameron and George Osborne were constantly banging on about during their various election campaigns? That was banded about as having been a bit of a fudge that they yeah, were
1: really. I can't remember. I thought it was 2% or 2%, but I but I can't remember the people were uh, saying at the, the, the time details. that it was
0: all a bit of a fudge. But what you seem to be saying is, you know, we've done the low-hanging fruit. Uh and indeed we've done quite a lot of the high-hanging fruit as well. So what's left?
1: Yeah, I think that's the 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 point. We really have done um, you know, as you say, not just the low-hanging fruit, but quite a lot of the. Uh, you know, more difficult to reach um, fruit. I mean, I've no doubt there are, I mean, of course, there are still um, efficiencies to be pushed out across the public sector. Um, yeah, I mean, there are issues around pay for some people. There are issues around the generosity of the public the pension scheme still. There's uh, issues around the productivity, actually, of hospitals and so on that, uh, you know, one could do something about. But the the scale of savings that are available it's really genuinely hard to see anything of the scale that would pay for the increased costs that we'll face in things like health and pensions, unless we come to accept less from the health and pension system. Mm.
0: Now, I saw your article in The Times about um, you know, one of the survivors of the financial crash being this sort of blue sky thinking the inability to be realistic about things. I
1: think uh, Blue Sky is a bit generous I think yeah. I
0: called it sort of magical thinking. Magical or, thinking uh, or delusional even. delusional thinking <laughs> even uh, indeed I you know I was being far too generous uh, to everyone concerned. I mean you very deftly balanced it up uh, balanced the blame on both sides you know both Tories and Labour uh, seemingly making magical promises of fixing these big structural problems. Um, but is there any way in which you know, Labour could be given some credit at all for at least acknowledging that you know taxes are going to have to go up, surely?
1: Yes. I mean, if you look at the uh, manifesto last year, they claimed to have £50 billion worth of taxes in there. Now, that's a big increase yeah. in taxes that's on anyone's, whopping, uh, or, or in anyone's <laughs> terms. Um, and some of those were, in a sense, genuine tax increases that would raise quite a lot of money. So big tax increases on people earning more than 85000 Pounds a year, um, that could raise a, a reasonable sum. Uh, big increases in corporation taxes, which would certainly raise a reasonable sum, not as much as the Labour Party claim, but still a fairly significant amount. Um, uh, and some other, and, and then quite a lot of other um, ways, which um, were aiming at closing loopholes and, and so on. In total, they said 50 billion, you know, that package might have raised in the 30 to 40 billion if they were going to, to do it. So, significant um, increase. Uh, the, I mean, part of the issue um, in, a, in the sense of what we're talking about here is that that money was not actually destined for the pressures that we're talking about. That wasn't destined for you know, the future for health and pensions and so on, actually there was nothing promised on increased spending on health. It was uh, a large fraction that was destined to uh, the abolition of um, university tuition fees, big increases in childcare spending, big increases in in, in other bits of public services, all of which absolutely perfectly, you know, reasonable, and all of this very much within the construct of European welfare states and the size of taxation there and, and so on. Um, The thing that uh, I think was less uh, honest about that Labour manifesto is it gave the very clear sense that you could do all of this uh, and actually most ordinary people wouldn't see any increases in taxation. Now actually that's not the case if you look across most of Europe where they do raise more taxes. They don't just get it off very rich people. They don't just get it off multinational corporations. They get it off broader base VAT systems. They get it off higher levels of social insurance contributions and so on. So we could move to that European sort of way of doing things. And to some extent, that's what the Labour Party was proposing. But as ever um, with politicians, you don't get them saying, if you want you know, these really good public services, then you Mr Johnson or you Mr Smith will have to pay for that tax it's always somebody else will do it
0: Mm. this is a question of how how much people contribute which is a very relevant topic on pensions at the moment because auto enrolment contributions about to go up Um, gather from my research that you did a review of auto enrolment for the government way back in 2010 is that correct
1: yeah, so when the coalition government came in in 2010 they wanted to, I think, partly reassure themselves that the policy that was being followed by the previous Labour government to introduce auto-enrolment, to introduce NEST and so on, was broadly going in the, in, in the right direction and they asked me to lead a small team to do that over the first six to nine months of that government.
0: We wrote a story about auto-enrolment in December last year, so just at the end of the year. Um, that was all about um, whether workers would want to opt out of their auto-enrolment pensions when the um, contributions increased, um, and it quoted an article that you'd written in the Times, um, and there was a comment from a someone who called themselves Fangio on our website, and he, and he said this, I, I think it's a he, uh, Mr Johnson also made mention in a diplomatic way of the lousy funds that were available under auto-enrolment all in all when you read between his lines it appears certainly to me that this was a critique of a lousy plan it was also a swipe at pension freedoms now i, I couldn't not see that and um i couldn't see that and not give you the opportunity to respond paul because having done a, an, a review on this i mean surely you know the net effect of auto enrolment is positive right
1: yes i don't remember the particular um <laughs> article that that's referring to but uh Um, You know, broadly speaking, so far, auto-enrolment has been uh, pretty successful in terms of getting very large numbers of people auto-enrolled. The power of inertia is clearly uh, very strong. Mm. Um, And we've done some work here, actually, which suggests that even quite a lot of people who are not um, supposedly brought within the net of auto-enrolment have actually come into the pension system, so people earning too little or of the wrong ages and so on, as employers have brought everyone Mm. um, in. Uh, so in that, uh, in those terms, it's been uh, it's been pretty uh, it's been pretty successful. The big unknown is, um, and of course, current rates of contribution, particularly for employees, is very low. So the big unknown is, will that power of inertia survive an increase in um, an increase in contributions? Um, I think the uh, I, I think the real issue. I mean, I the two issues really with with where we're going with auto enrolment and the and the pension system. One is um, because this all happens terribly automatically um, at the point at which you know you then do have to make a choice about what you do with the money when you get to retirement when you use your freedoms having done nothing uh, before then you then have to make a really quite complex set of choices about what to do and how well will the system cope with that I don't know. Um, I think the second sort of more serious issue though for, for the pensions Sort of field as a whole is that all both those who are auto enrolled and um, you know and everyone else essentially other than those in the public sector they're all in defined contribution schemes they bear all of the risk mm. each individual bears all of the risk mm. um, and individuals are really not very well placed to deal with that kind of risk mm. um, and we've moved away from a world in which the state was sharing quite a lot of the risk through the state earnings related scheme and. Companies were sharing quite a lot of the risk through defined benefit schemes, and individuals were bearing some of the risk. It's now all on the individual, other than the residual uh, basic pension, and that's true whether it's through auto enrolment or whether it's through any other form of defined contribution plan. And that, 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 that is, I think, in the long run, quite worrying. I was, I was going to ask you about that because I'm obviously not an economist, but that is one of my
0: chief concerns: is that all of this risk is effectively being privatised, and it for at a point um where people are facing extremely big and complicated decisions and the risk is a lot higher than it is when they're simply choosing a pension or a provider um, and they've got time left crucially to right any wrongs that occur along the accumulation journey um they're far more exposed and i wondered you know just how worried you are about that if i if i was a a, a pension minister i would be extremely concerned
1: Yes, well, I, I think that, I, I think you'd be right to be concerned. I mean, it's, um, what's it's th- the answer though? It's interesting the way that you know some schemes are dealing with this, and I think this is true of certainly was true of Nest, which is to you know as you move people into the schemes, you actually put them in quite safe assets, so they get used to the idea of not losing anything. Yeah. Um, but actually, whether well, that's the right thing to do, given you know when you're a long way from retirement, you may want to be taking more risk. But the but the, but the underlying problem is you know it, you could easily imagine a generation. Um, Getting to retirement, having done really quite badly, or maybe not a generation, maybe a group who have invested, unluckily, in one scheme as opposed to um, as opposed to another. Uh, So you know there there are there are big risks associated with that, and in a way, in a way at least, that's sort of compounded by pension freedoms because, if as seems to be the case, most people then don't take an annuity, they're not even. Um, sharing their longevity risk as they would if they were um, taking an annuity and the and the risk associated with uh, with not just uh, returns but longevity uh, falls on the um, falls on the individual so we're we're definitely in a you know a third best kind of world Um, the problem is that getting the institutional framework right to share risk in a way which doesn't result in incredibly low returns, which is part of the problem with annuities, um, or it puts too much risk on the employer, which is why we've got rid of